Well, I don't know if you guys remember, but at the start of this Hebrew series, I shared with you one of the worst jokes I've ever heard. But, but a lot of you guys actually came up to me after and said it was one of the best jokes you've ever heard, which means you guys are not that funny. <laughs> so today, I want to start with one of the best jokes you've ever heard in your life. Okay? And if you don't find this joke funny then please send us an email to anthonybeyond at the chapel, Sydney, wherever he is. So the joke is this. Why does God make the best beer? Beer. Because he brews it himself. Ha, 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 <laughs> but the email again is Anthony Bjorn at the chapel, Sydney. And if that email doesn't work, I can tell you exactly where he lives. Okay? Just over that way. Well, I recently finished watching the latest uh, new Elvis movie. And this movie shows the story of Elvis, how he rose to fame, right? how, how he struggled with, with drugs, alcohol, the, and the final couple of hours and uh, days of his life. And if you've read his biography or you know anything about his final years of his life, it's, it's actually pretty sad. It's actually a sad story. It's a story filled with drug abuse, relational breakdowns, insecurities, and ultimately sin. What Elvis did was he chose the things of the world, power, money, fame, sex, influence, status. He chose those things, the temporary fleeting things of this world over Jesus. And as I was watching this movie, it dawned on me that this is exactly the thing that the, the author of Hebrews is warning us about. He's saying, choose Jesus because he is better. Because like Elvis, we struggle with exactly the same things. In a time and season where everything is trying to grab our attention and focus, we're all tempted to look at other things. We're all tempted to look at things we think are better than Jesus. Money, work, relationships. And like Elvis, we have constantly, consistently chosen those things over Jesus. But today in this last chapter of Hebrews, we're going to see this last encouragement by this author. And he's telling us, hey, this is what a Christian should look like. This is how a Christian should live. So let's turn to our passage today, Hebrews 13, 1 to 9. Uh, if you've got your physical Bibles, that's great. If you don't, uh, it's on the screen at the back. Let's read from verse 1. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can me mortals do to me? 
Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Verse 9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, but not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. Amen. Well, today marks the end of our time in the book of Hebrews. And the whole book, right, can be summed up in this statement. Jesus is better. He is better than the angels, than Moses, than the old covenant, than the old sacrificial systems. Jesus is better than anything we could hope for, dream of, or desire. And remember that this book is actually addressed to Jewish Christians. They have accepted Jesus. They are living for him. But for some reason, they have hit a bump and they're thinking of going back to the Jewish ways. They're thinking of going back to their old ways. And a lot of them were in danger of drifting away from the gospel. They were in danger of hardening their hearts against God. And this may be you today. You might be here, and you might be saying, I'm going to give it one more Sunday. I'm going to give it one more Sunday, and then that's it. I'm done with all this Jesus stuff. And if that's you, then you're in the right place. You're not here by accident. But the God of the universe, the God who tells the sun to rise and set, this God has gathered us today for his purpose to draw us to him. So let today be a reminder that Jesus is better. He's better than any dream that you uh, could desire, any relationship that you desire, any car that you've ever wanted. He's He's better. Jesus is better. And so today, in this last chapter, uh, the author of Hebrews is giving us his final conclusions, his final exhortations or encouragements. He's saying, hey, before I go, remember this. This is how you should be living as a Christian. And we see the author give us these four specific encouragements. Right? Number one, be outwardly focused. Number two, look inward. Number three, listen to your leaders. And number four, go to Jesus. And that's the way the book finishes. Go to Jesus. And it's such a fitting way to end this book of Hebrews. Because although it's one book in the New Testament, it's actually part of a greater story of the Bible. So the first encouragement that the author leaves with us is this. A Christian should be outwardly focused, looking to care for those around you. And he gives us these really specific examples in hospitality and loving those in prison. He says this in verse 2. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by, doing some, for, by, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, hospitality has been such a massive focus of the, the Christian faith and Christian communities. And the author is reminding us, hey, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, is the author saying, hey, you should welcome in every stranger that comes and knocks on your door? That's, no, that's not what he's saying. The early church, we have to remember that the early church was very mission-focused. And many early Christians traveled. 
right? They traveled to spread the gospel. And travel was dangerous. It was dangerous and difficult. And it's most likely that the author is thinking about these Christian travelers as the strangers. They were likely, they were likely Christian missionaries traveling around to, to spread the gospel. And he reminds us, hey, don't forget about these people. But hospitality, it isn't just inviting Christian missionaries over, but it means looking out for the needs of those around you, right? And did you know that hospitality is, is central to the Christian faith? It's so central that in 1 Timothy 3, 2, it actually lists hospitality as a requirement to be an elder in the church, a leader in the church. Now, when we talk about hospitality, don't get it mixed up with entertaining. Because biblical hospitality, is, it's not just about hosting dinner parties. It's others-centered. Biblical hospitality focuses on meeting the needs of others rather than just having a good time. Practically, uh, this is going to look different to every person. right? But this, is, this will look like inviting different people into your home welcoming and inviting people you would normally not even cross paths with. And this is not easy because we like our circle of friends. We hate it when there's change. But can I encourage you today, reach out to someone who's not already a part of your social circle. Who is it that you can bless this week? What family can you be a blessing to? You know I, know, I know I've shared this before a lot of times, but one of the families that really do this well in our church is Pastor Stephen Mel. Most weeks, you know, they have uh, multiple groups over to their place. And, you know, they haven't been just doing this like a year ago, but they've been doing this for like 15, 16 years. And it's hard enough when it's just them two, but, you know, they've been doing this with a lot of kids, like a lot of kids, you know, like a lot. And it's not just a capacity thing as well because, you know, Pastor Steve, he's probably had more jobs at one time than any of us here. And Pastor Mel, you know, she does a lot of things behind the scenes for church, more than we realize. They should be the most time-poor family in our church. But, so it's not a capacity thing, but it's a heart issue. Sangi and Jenny, you know, they have an amazing heart to serve people. Uh, they invite people over and bless them with a meal. Dohi and Ren, as you get to know them, they have an amazing, uh, hospitable heart. Anthony, Bjorn, and Josh, who live across the road and past the months, you know, they, they, they are forced to practice hospitality every week <laughs> because everyone just goes over. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but say thank you to them when you can. <laughs> there are countless people within our community that have, uh, that have gone beyond their own need to be a blessing to those around. Hospitality is not just for our own pleasure. But at the end of the day, it's to, it's to really advance the kingdom of God. That's why the author says in verse 2, some have entertained angels without knowing it. And the point here is not that we should expect angels in our homes, which is very possible, but the author is saying that we just don't know the significance our hospitality might have for the kingdom of God. A simple meal, 
a small act of kindness, it can have an immense impact. And so again, how will you cultivate this heart of hospitality this week? The second encouragement uh, the author leaves with us is this. A Christian should look inwardly to his or her, her own life. Now, verse 1 to 3 in this chapter is, is all about caring for those around you, external. But verses 4 to 6, it's all about an internal perspective. And he chooses to focus in on the two most common idols that human beings have, sex and money. Verse 4, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God would judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now I understand that in a room of 60, 70, 80 people, there are those of us who have struggled or are struggling with the guilt and shame and despair of a broken marriage, past trauma or abuse or sexual uh, immorality. So no one is exempt from this idol because we're all broken and we're all sinful. But the author's heart behind this encouragement is it's not to condemn us but to remind us that God cares about sex and marriage because he cares about people. He cares about you and he cares about me. And if you call yourself a Christian and you've experienced the trauma of a broken marriage or the trauma of sexual abuse or, or you've, you've failed morally in this area, then please remember that you are not forgotten. You were washed you are sanctified. You are justified in the name of Jesus. Jesus has taken on that full shame and guilt of our sin, past, present, future. And when we go to Jesus and when we surrender all that shame, all that shame is at the foot of the cross. The blood of Jesus, it covers us. The blood of Jesus, it takes our guilt, it takes our shame. It takes our lust back to the cross where Jesus suffered for it as his own and he frees us forever. And it is no longer our burden to bear. For those of us who have um, sexual sin in our past or struggling with it at the moment, please remember that there is always forgiveness for those who repent of their sin by believing in Jesus, by turning to Jesus. You know, marriage wasn't man's idea. It's not something that society came up with all of a sudden. But marriage between a man and a woman was designed by God. And so for the married couples, he honoring your spouse, honoring your marriage, it's just a picture of the way Christ loves the church. That's what Ephesians 5 tells us. And so if you dishonor marriage through an affair, through an abuse, or through pornography, then you're really dishonoring God's picture of redemption. Have you ever thought about this? When a fire is contained in a fireplace, it brings light, warmth, beauty, life. But when a fire jumps out of a fireplace and onto the curtains or into a forest, it brings destruction. It will burn your house down. Fire in its right context and boundaries is good, but as soon as it's taken out of that context in which God intended, it brings destruction. The consequences of, of us doing whatever we want sexually outside of the confines of marriage, it brings destruction. 
because we've abused that gift from God. Dishonoring your marriage and disobeying God by doing whatever you want sexually has its consequences. And the consequences are broken homes, broken families, emotional, psychological trauma. And we just need to look around to see the devastating effects of what broken marriages and relationships have done to society and our community as well. And the same is true for money. The command that the author gives us in verse 5 is this, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. If you guys are into K-dramas or documentaries, there are so many these days that base their episodes of pastors or churches that, that abuse money, that run off with money. And, and why do they do that? Why are they doing that? It's because the love of money is a massive pitfall for Christians. Money will always fail to provide the happiness it promised. The great Charles Spurgeon, uh, who's nicknamed the Prince of Preachers, said this, or oh, these are some of his quotes about money, wealth is not true riches. He who gets money without Christ is, is a beggar still. Though you hoard up wealth, gold is still gold is nothing but dust to a dying man. And in the 1990s, the great American philosopher, the notorious B.I.G., said this, more money, more problems. <laughs> yeah, no? <laughs> All the 90s and 80s kids got this. And please hear me on this. I'm not saying that... that uh, that poverty will bring happiness. Right? I'm not saying that it's sinful to have money because sometimes God blesses us with wealth. And you don't need to be rich to love money. Poor people can love money too. 1, 1 Timothy 6, 9-10 says this. It describes the danger of, of money. It says this. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Have you thought about this? Money is like salt water. The more you drink salt water, the thirstier you get. Why? Because it's never enough. It never satisfies your thirst. The author is reminding us, look inwardly to how we steward our money. He tells us to be content instead of worrying about money. Why? Because God provides. He provides. This week, how will you trust God more with your money? For some of you, you guys need to give more. You need to be more generous. And I'm not talking about giving to the church, but, but generally in life. Because giving and being generous, it's not about how much money you have. It's actually a heart issue. And some of you spend and spend and spend, hoping that the next thing that you buy will fill that gap in your heart. But remember that Jesus warns us you can't serve both God and money. So are you serving God or are you serving money? And this is why the author is reminding us in verse 5, God's promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. And in verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
If God is the one who provides, and if God is the one who never leaves us or abandons us, then why are we so stingy with the things that we have? And so the question for us is, how can we honor God this week in our marriages if we're not married in our sexual purity? And how can we trust God with our money? How can we be more generous? The third encouragement the author leaves uh, with us is this, listen to your guides and watch out for strange teachings. Australia is known for its dangerous animals. You know, the top 10 venomous uh, snakes are all found in Australia. And Australia is known for its uh, landscape, national parks, hikes, dense forests. And if you've ever been hiking or lost in a national park, you would know that the real danger is if you get injured or lost. Danger from snakes, spiders, cliffs. And if you have to spend the night outside, it's hypothermia. And the reason why most people get lost or in danger in the wild is because they are unprepared for the dangers. They don't realize how dangerous the wilderness can really be. Similarly, Christian, the Christian life is not an easy path. We get distracted and we get lost sometimes. We get dragged off the path by false teachers and strange teachings. A guide is someone who knows the wilderness, who knows the terrain and is equipped for the dangers, who can help you through the wild. This is the same for the Christian life. And this is why the author is encouraging us. Remember your leaders. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. He's talking about church leaders here, board members, the pastoral staff. And the central way that God wants us to learn about him is through hearing the word from your leaders. Now, of course, you need to study the Bible on your own. We need to study it. But God uses preaching, teaching in the, in the local church to specifically deliver his word to his people. And this is why being part of a regular congregation is so key. It's so important. And some of you guys are no eye contact. Some of you guys are super inconsistent to church. <laughs> and I understand that some of you are in a difficult season. Right? You're tired. You push your time. You've got deadlines. You've been up all night feeding your kids. But can I just encourage you, make this a priority. Make this a priority. Because you won't last in your spiritual walk with God by yourself. We're not meant to do life by ourselves. Because community and gathering and hearing the word of God, it, this is what fuels us. This is how we encourage each other. This is how we remind each other that we were once in darkness, that we were once lost, that we were once dead in our sins. But we gather to celebrate the God who took us out of darkness and into the light. The Christian life is not easy. Now, of course, church leaders, they don't get it all right. And we're not called to blindly follow church leaders. If they're taking you down a sinful path or a heretical path, then you should avoid them at all costs. Leaders that are abusive or wield their authority in a way for their own glory or power, you need to avoid them. 
But most church leaders have faithful shepherds. Most. They're doing the best they can. They're trying to put God first. So if you have trouble submitting to church leaders, then you're going to have trouble submitting to God because it's God who puts leaders in leadership. And verse 17 says that leaders bear a heavy burden in looking after you and leading you well. They, keep, they are keeping watch over you as those who will have to give an account. Good leaders and shepherds, they point you to Jesus. And this brings us to our final encouragement. And it's this, go to Jesus. Why? Why? Because there are false teachers and false teachings. In a theology survey done last year in the U.S., uh, the three most common mistaken beliefs held by Christians was this. Number one, Jesus isn't the only way to God. Now, 56% said that they affirm that God accepts the worship of all religions, which isn't what the Bible says, right? Number two, Jesus was created by God. 73% agreed with this statement, saying that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. This is also false. And and it was actually a popular heresy that, that was going around in the fourth century. And number three, Jesus is not God. 43% of people said that Jesus was a great teacher, but he wasn't God, which is another false statement. Similarly, the reason why the author is telling the Hebrew people to go to Jesus is because the, the false teachers... Uh, they were wanting the Jewish Christians to go back to their old way. They were telling people, you have to abstain or eat certain foods to draw closer to God. It's like how Muslims don't eat pork because the Quran says it's forbidden. But we have to remember that it's not the food that makes us clean. But it's Jesus that makes us clean. And this is why the author starts talking about the high priest in verse 10. He's telling us, hey, don't look at the old covenant, the old way of doing things. We actually don't need someone to sacrifice on our behalf because Jesus himself was our sacrifice. And remember how in the Old Testament, in the old covenant, the high priest, they would have to go and take uh, an animal and, and sacrifice and shed its blood to cover the sins of the people. That was the Old Testament. That's so why it says in verse 11, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most, most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. Now, when the high priest uh, went and made a sin offering, they would take the bodies of the animals that, that were sacrificed and they would burn them outside the camp outside the city walls. And this is significant. Because to be in the camp, it was to be near God. And to be outside the camp, it was actually, it meant to be rejected by God. Now, Michael Kruger, in his commentary, he says this, when animal sacrifices were put outside the camp, 
It was a symbolic picture of the fact that the judgment the people deserved had been diverted. If we put it another way, the animals had been rejected outside the camp so that the people could stay inside and draw near to God. And that's why verse 12 is so amazing. It says this, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. And Golgotha, where, where Jesus was crucified, it's, it's outside the walls of Jerusalem. It's outside the city gate. And this means that Jesus took on the full wrath of God. He took on the full punishment of sin. He was cast out of the city. And he took your place and he took my place. Because we are the ones that should have been rejected outside the camp. Verse 13, it says, Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. We're called to go to Jesus outside the camp. And this means going to Jesus, willing to bear the rejection, the shame, the humiliation that comes with saying, Jesus, I follow you. And so as we wrap up this whole book of Hebrews, the underlying message is this. Salvation is not earned by our own efforts. There is nothing that we can do to earn our way into heaven. But salvation is only by the shed blood of the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. And it is only his blood that cleanses our sin. Past, present, future. Jesus who willingly endured the scorn and the shame. He is better. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the old covenant ceremonies and rituals. Jesus is better than anything you could desire, dream, or hope. So let's go to this author of salvation. Jesus, our creator, our sustainer, our purifier, our representer, our, our ruler, and our king. Let's close our eyes in prayer.